Hey, I'm Nate. Glad you're here. Have a seat. You're welcome to, to be here. Uh, get to be the pastor here at New City. Really glad we get to study together uh, in the book of Daniel. We've been saying throughout this series that Daniel can be used as a kind of manual for understanding our faith in exile. And what I've enjoyed in this series is looking at Daniel through that lens, like kind of trying to connect the, the world that we live in uh, and the world uh, of Daniel. And to figure out what, what are we to learn from the world of Daniel and how does it apply to the world that we live in. And so the message will take a turn at the very end. I'll get kind of a little practical. It might feel a little heady uh, for a minute, but hold on. Uh, it, it'll be good. I, I hope it will be good anyway. All right, the exile experience is living life in a world that does not embrace or understand your unique culture, ethics, or faith. That's the exile experience. When you find yourself living in a world where you're like, man, my faith seems to be not commonly held. Uh, the ethics that I believe in, the, th the way of life that I embrace doesn't seem to be commonly held. Uh, the unique kind of cultural elements of my community don't seem to be commonly held. See, exiles are not at home. Uh, in fact, exiles were never meant to feel, or Christians were never meant to feel at home in this world. We're always meant to embrace that exile motif, that exile mentality. The author of Hebrews says it this way, For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Uh, our namesake here at New City is that the, we, we look forward to the new city, the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven to earth. The, 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 when when we, we hear the, the words of the voice from the throne saying, our Lord and Savior saying, behold, I make all things new. That's what we're hoping for, uh, the renewal work of God. In other words, we're not settling here. In fact, one of the most unsettling things you can do is attempt to settle in this world. Uh, this world was not, uh, is, is, is no longer a place uh, that is hospitable to human life because it's under the curse of sin. Uh, to try to settle here is to try to settle in a place that's always kind of breaking apart and falling apart. Uh, there, there are elements of the good things that God created that are here that point to what God's going to be recreating, but we have to recognize that the world that we live in, that our, our bodies and all the, physical, the, all the rest of the physical world is under a curse of sin and it's falling apart. The way Tim Keller says it is that there's nothing better than ordinary life. That's the thing that God's redeeming, except that it's always going away and always falling apart. And we have to recognize that this world is inhospitable to life. Uh, you, this is not a difficult truth to believe in because you know and I know that we are, life is limited here. Because of sin, it's limited here. And so what we're to be learning here is like how do, how do we make the most of this life and exile that God's given us? See, Daniel is not providing us with a complete history. That's not the objective of uh, his writing. But it, it does put history in context for the exile. It puts it in the right kind of context. It jumps off the page if you're reading along in Daniel. Daniel 5.1, you're like, hey, King Belshazzar. I thought we were, we were dealing with King Nebuchadnezzar. What happened to him? And it seems like all this history has been passed. And it has. About 20 years of history has been passed. But the point of Daniel wasn't to give a complete history. The point of Daniel was to say, hey, exiles, guess what? God's sovereign. He's good. He's in control. Don't worry. The kingdoms of this world are, are all falling apart. In fact, that was the prophecy given in Daniel 2 uh, the, the, through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel says, hey, Nebuchadnezzar, what's going to happen is your kingdom's going to be great, but all the kingdoms that come after you, they're all going to be inferior to yours. In other words, there's no progressive gene written into the kingdoms of this world that, that ensure they'll always get better. In fact, evidence of history is that kingdoms keep getting worse and worse and worse. But there is a kingdom that doesn't. And that's pointed to in Daniel 2.44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. 
And as Christians living in exile, we embrace the words of Hebrews 12, 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. In other words, our hope as Christians isn't in any earthly man-contrived kingdom, but our hope is in the kingdom of Jesus that doesn't end, that is forever and is unshakable. That's where we put our confidence and our hope. We don't put our confidence and hope in the kingdoms of man. We recognize that there is no progress gene written into human society that ensures continual flourishment. In fact, the evidence is, is just the opposite. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. Daniel, uh, Daniel Aiken in his commentary says, so there is a chronological gap between chapters 4 and 5 of approximately 20 years. We must keep in mind, however, that Daniel was never written to give us a history lesson about Babylonians, Medes, and Persians. It was written to encourage the Hebrew people, God's people, that though they had been defeated in exile three times, God was sovereignly in control. And they should trust him. Here's the trick. They should trust him even when they could not trace his hand. And that is really true, the trick often of our lives, is trusting God even when we can't trace his hand. But there is a hand in this particular t- passage. There's a hand today. There's a, there's a hand that's writing on the wall. This is where we get the phrase, the writing is on the wall. Uh, it comes from this very passage because literally there is a, a miraculous sort of writing on the wall. And the writing on the wall is not a very complex message. The, the message is, hey, guess what, King Belshazzar, your kingdom is limited. In fact, tonight is your night. Uh, you see that in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, uh, the Chaldean king was killed and Darius the Mede received the kingdom. It was like that. We, inter- we introduced to him and 30 verses later, he's dead. Uh, his kingdom was like that in terms of the pages of history, but there's an illustration here. And the illustration for you and me is that he failed to recognize something fundamentally, fun- fundamental and important to our flourishing in this life. And that's understanding that life has urgency, but also that life has importance and that life is temporary, but it's not just temporary, it's also eternal. There's a king, there's a king named Jesus who's come to rescue us, and all the, all sort of the pointing towards Jesus and his ultimate kingship and his ultimate authority, all that's happening here, and, and there's a failure to recognize it. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar didn't recognize the authority of God, that's why he suffered, and now we sing, uh, see another king who doesn't recognize the authority of God, and he's going to also suffer. But the writing is on the wall, life is temporary. It's temporary. There, there are cultural moments when we get to see the writing on the wall all together, culturally. We experience it, uh, where, where we, we collectively recognize, yeah, life is temporary, and suddenly sometimes our number's called, and we don't know when it's going to get called. And, you know, I, I don't want my number to be called tomorrow. I don't. I mean, I, I, I want to live for a very long time. I'm planning to live for a very long time. I practiced soccer with my kids yesterday because I plan to live for a very long time. And I woke up this morning and I thought, I'm not living very long. Um, it's just, my body's like falling apart. But, you know, I, I want to. I mean, I really do want to. But there are these moments in, in, the, in, in kind of our kind of cultural sort of, you know, history, where we all, you know, collective history that we get to experience, like 9-11, like when we just recognize that sometimes things happen suddenly. We don't know when it's going to happen to us. And, and you know, we, we have these sort of events even personally where, you know, somebody in our life just suddenly, you know, they were here and now they're not. Uh, it happened a couple Sundays ago with Kobe Bryant. I mean, it was like this cultural phenomenon. Everyone was talking about Kobe. It was like, wow, this is so sudden and, and shocking. But James says that you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while, and then vanishes. 
aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> it's like, well, is there any like, good news here? Uh, there will be. It's, it's coming. But we have to recognize, we have to sit for a second, I think at least, to recognize this you know, very important point that life is temporary. And so when the writing's on the wall, how are you going to respond to it? Uh, it wasn't like you know, the Medes um, you know, were, were just, 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 just attacked like that. I mean, this is a, something that had been building. There had been a sort of army surrounding the kingdom. This was, this, was, this was like a known reality. It wasn't a sneak attack. It kind of was a sneak attack when the, the evasion finally happened, but it wasn't like you know, a, a sneak attack in, in the terms of like they didn't know that attack could happen and that may even be imminent. But it seems to me that the king just ignored reality. He was, like, in fact, taking you know, a master's class and ignoring reality. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand, just saying you know, whatever, let's just party. This, by the way, is an appropriate attitude. Uh, in fact, the Bible says, hey, this is an appropriate attitude to have if there is no resurrection for the dead and if God is not on the throne, if God hasn't redeemed the broken world. Paul says, uh, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I mean, what else is there? But we know there's so much more than that. Uh, there's so much more than just eating and drinking. Uh, because death is but a doorway for the believer to, to, to lasting city, the life everlasting, the life with God, our Savior. We can ignore reality. Like Certainly we can try to ignore reality. We can certainly try to satiate the fear that we have in life. Seems that's uh, what's going on here with this party. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, in other words, he got, his, uh, you know, he got a little happy, commanded the vessels of gold and uh, of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought that the king and his lords, his wives, and here's the real kind of weird thing, is he brought his wives and his concubines to the same party, and they all drank from the cups. And just, just totally, you know, just, just absurd scene happening. Uh, he is escaping. He's, he's doing his best to escape with wine, women, and worship. Uh, that's, that was his sort of tools of escapism, uh, worshiping the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron, these gods that have no power at all to rescue, but worshiping them, bringing his wives and his concubines to the party, celebrating with copious amounts of wine in front of a thousand people, just putting on display a master class in escapism. And so when the writing's on the wall, how are you going to respond? You could ignore reality. You could satiate the fear. You could also collapse under the pressure. You know, some people do that. I mean, they see sort of the fragility of life. They see how fragile their life is. They come to the end of themselves, and they just collapse in a puddle because of the fear of what they anticipate to be happening in life. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared, wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote, and then the text says he just collapsed. Absolutely, just gave, his, his knees gave in, and he collapsed. I think there are four truths that we need to examine in this text that they just need to be addressed. You know, four truths that we need to look, look at and just need to address and things that we need to recognize. One of those truths is this. You are not invincible. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that because we live like we are invincible. We live like we have lim limitless capacity. We live like we have limitless time. We live like we have limitless energy, but we know that we don't because we are, you know, we are finite beings and we have limited capacity. We have limited energy. We have limited time. And you don't know like when your night's going to get called. You don't know when, when it's going to be said of you. That very night, that very night was your night. 
And what happens, I think, though, a lot of times in our lives, we spend all of our time and all of our energy and all of our focus trying to convince ourselves that we're invincible, and we do so by, by gathering things in our life to try to, to, try to help us to, to, to convince ourselves that we're okay, that we're going to be all right, that we're, that we're safe and secure. And I think our greatest fear should not be a failure, by the way. Our greatest fear should be succeeding at the wrong thing. What happens in life is that we get tired. We get really tired trying to convince ourselves that we can be invincible, trying to protect our lives through our effort and through our achievement, trying to gather up things to, to be our source of security rather than leaning on God and His sovereignty. Jesus told a parable about this, and I want you to just listen to Jesus. Let Him teach you. He told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And He thought to Himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. You know, you can be rich, I mean, enormously rich, with the wrong commodity. You can be enormously rich with things that are powerless to save you. You could be King Belshazzar just doing your best to escape, to satiate, to ignore reality by, by putting on display all of your possessions and all the things that you own as a display of power to try to convince yourself and others that you're okay. When the writing is on the wall, none of those things can save you. More of this temporal world will not save your eternal soul. The things in this world are, are powerless to rescue you. You are not invincible, and stuff cannot save you. It just has no ability to rescue you. They drink wine and praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. But these gods, they don't speak, they don't hear, they don't listen. They're powerless. We should not be afraid of not having enough. We should be afraid of having too much of the wrong thing. In the words of Jesus, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? God, God said in the parable, you fool, tonight's your night. And what are your things going to do to rescue you? How can they save you? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God, who has too much of the wrong thing who's labored an entire life accumulating stuff that is powerless to bring ultimate meaning and purpose to your life. More of this broken world will not fix your broken life. You can try to convince yourself that the opposite of that is true. In fact, advertisers every day are trying to convince you that the opposite of that is true. They're trying to say that this will fix you, and this will fix you, and this will fix you. And we dump our energy and time into temporal things that have no capacity at all to save us eternally. So here's a truth, that you are not invincible. Stuff cannot save you, and pride will destroy you. The lesson Belshazzar did not learn was a lesson that God taught to Nebuchadnezzar just a few uh, kings earlier. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of 
the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed. Whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling was uh, with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Here's the money line. Until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. Until he knew God's surpassing power. Look, I... Every once in a while, I'll get to a place like in a message where I anticipate there's like some pushback, and this is one of those places. I didn't anticipate it in the writing, so I didn't write any of this into the message, but I, I'm anticipating it now. That often when I start talking about how, you know, you, you talk about your limited capacity, uh, when I start talking about worshiping God, first and foremost, about loving God and loving your neighbor, and, you know, just finding your identity, not in your work, but finding your identity in who God is and what he's done for you, that you're essentially, you're an image bearer of God. God. God's made you to bear his image to the world, that you are not the source of all meaning. Whenever that kind of thing comes up, that they're, like high capacity people tend to go, well, what, what's my motivation for working hard? Because the only motivation I know is like, you know, conquering the other guy and proving my worth through my achievement. Where's my motivation? And it's, it's, I think sometimes people think that Christian, Christians are opposed to power and opposed to possessions. I, I don't think that's true. We should not be afraid of power and possessions. But we should be afraid of power and possessions possessing us. That somehow this happens to us when, when we start to grow in our wealth, we start to grow in our uh, capacity, we start to grow in our, our power, we start to grow in, you know, we start to read our own press. And it's easy for, for a Christian person who, who confesses Christ as Lord to, to live as though they're the center of the universe and not Christ. And to and discover in, 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 a, in a moment that what's happened is that they've been working so hard for these possessions, but now these possessions are now possessing them. Clothe yourselves all with humility. He's, the, the scripture says in 1 Peter 5. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. This, this, man, this is the kind of verse that just punches you. For God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Like if, you, if you're proud and you're arrogant and you've built your identity on your possessions and you've built your identity on what you've achieved and you've built your identity on being better than other people in humanity, God is opposed to you. That, 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 should, that should strike us someplace inside of us and go, okay, I don't, want to be, I don't want God to be opposed to me. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So the proper time, he may exalt you. Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar, no humility under the mighty hand of God. No recognition of God being the ultimate authority. See, pride is intoxicating, and it's so intoxicating that it prevents you from thinking clearly about yourself and the world around you. You just simply can't see yourself. That's one of the most, you know, the most harming things about pride is it blinds you to you. And other people see it, you know, but it's hard for you to see it. It's hard for you to see anybody else. See, eventually every person discovers the futility of the fallen world. That's another lesson from this text. 
You're not invincible. Stuff cannot save you. Pride will destroy you. And eventually, and I, and I, I don't want to be like the Debbie Downer here, but eventually everyone discovers the futility of this fallen world. Like eventually everybody realizes they're limited. Eventually, everybody realizes you, you can't just keep running at, at this at full bore all the time because you are not an invincible God-man or God-woman. You have limits. When the finger goes on the wall, you can read here in the passage, immediately the finger of the human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. The king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. He's realizing something. A realization has come over him that's caused fear to strike him. The king called loudly to bring the encanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing shows me the interpretation, shall be clothed with purple, have a chain of gold around his neck, and shall be uh, the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing to make known to the king the interpretation. And King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. His color changed. And his lords were perplexed. The writing on the wall simply was this. You are not enough to save you. Eventually you'll read that same message. Like if you're not, if you haven't already been convinced of it, you eventually will. Because it's, 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 it's wound into this curse that we live under, this curse of sin. Like you will, you will discover it. Like this, this world is really hard and it's really brutal. And you don't have what it takes to save you. That's why God sent His Son. God the Father sent His Son Jesus to live the life that you could not live, to die the death that you should have died on the cross, to, to take your sins and the penalty of your sins away from you, to be buried in the grave, to rise again, to, give, to conquer both death and sin, and to give you new life, and to give you His righteousness. And He also gave you the Holy Spirit. He just says, yeah, that's true. God's your Father, and you are loved, and your sins have been forgiven. Dale Davis in his commentary says that whenever God brings a man to the end of himself, smashing all his props and wasting his idols, it is a favorable moment indeed if he will but see it. You know, having crisis in your life isn't the worst thing that could happen. Losing everything is not the worst thing that could happen. Losing your soul is. There are moments in our lives where we, we come to the end of ourselves, and that is a, that's a glorious moment. Because at least you're able in that moment to admit that you're not enough. And hopefully in that moment of admitting that you're not enough, you could go to God and say you're more than enough. And instead of putting your trust in yourself, you could put your trust in God and say you can do it for, for me, God, what I could never do for myself. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That's the ultimate. That's the ultimate truth. Like, this world... It, I mean, you can labor, you can work hard, you can try to achieve, you can gather up things, but none of that hard work and none of that effort can save or rescue you. You may never know that God is all you need until God is all you have. And sometimes we have to come to the place where we realize that God is all I have. C.S. Lewis said it this way, He who has God and everything else has no more than he who has God only. And so I think the writing's on the wall, and there are lots of ways to respond. Ignore reality, sure, you could do that. Satiate the fear, many people have. Some of you may be doing it right now, just satiating. Dumping all of your affections and your energies into things that don't matter 
that just facilitate your escapism. You certainly could collapse under the fear, and that happens a lot. People just collapse under the weight of it all, the fragility of life. Or there's another option. You could fear God to the extent that you fear nothing else. You could let him become so great that, that everything else begins to diminish. The Bible says a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And this is a truth of life that if you embrace it, something great and glorious could happen in your life. As, as your fear of God increases, your fear of everything else will decrease. And as you begin to fear God and respect Him and see Him as the, as the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth, the ultimate power, the, the, the loving God that He is, what happens is your fear of everything else in life, it just begins to dissipate. And that is what it means to fear God. To fear God is to recognize that God is the ultimate self-existing truth and to surrender to His will above your own. To say, not my will, but yours be done. And so I, 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 I'm not one of those people who, like, when you're in a crisis event, I feel like that's the worst thing that could happen to you. Because in a crisis event, there's opportunity there for God to move and to do miraculous things in your life. And it's natural to look for truth and meaning in a crisis event. I mean, that's a natural thing. What did the king do when he faces this crisis? In verse 7, the king called loudly, bring me the encanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, like bring me everybody. But you know what? An idolatrous culture will always fail to deliver on God-sized problems. And, and you, 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 you will have moments in life where the problem you're facing is not one that your idols can address. But it's a God-sized problem that needs a God-sized intervention. All the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the, to the king the interpretation. I circled this in my notes because it was good for me. This is good for me to hear. I might even just add to this. Nate, when your problems outgrow your truth, you're in real trouble. That's, that's a powerful moment. When your problems outsize you're God, you're in real deep trouble. He says, and you, his son, you haven't learned the lessons, Belshazzar. You've not humbled your heart, though you knew all of this. But you have filled up yourself against the, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar, you're not enough. And your problems have exceeded the capacity of your gods. 
Yeah, I think we're in an interesting cultural moment. I've been giving this a lot of thought. Here's the part of the message where I take a little turn, do some interpretation, and we come back to the text. Uh, people have been taught, I think, in our, in our cultural time to look for truth in all the wrong places. Um, the form, the shape of idolatry is, is a little bit different uh, than maybe in previous generations and previous times. Uh, what's, what's, what's begun to happen is the conception of truth has changed and shifted. shifted. And what Francis Schaeffer, like looking ahead, he's like writing this in the 70s, like mid-late 70s, the book called The God Who Is There. He was like, observing this kind of change and shift of the truth. This was before the Internet age. He said, the present chasm between the generations has, brought, has been brought about almost entirely by a change in the concept of truth. And so what happened to the truth? Well, the truth, it moved. And this, is, this is really important if you want to understand what life in exile right now, like the, the, the experience you're having in exile right now, you need to understand what happened to truth. It moved. In the book, The God Who Is There, he talks about how truth um, flows in history. Uh, this graph does not illustrate how truth flows currently uh, because the internet has changed the entire flow of the truth pattern. But prior to the internet, you, you, it would go from philosophy to art to music to culture to, to the, theology. That's how a cultural shift happened. As you go down the stairs, uh, that indicates a you know, time, uh, the, the, the passing of time. And as he began to sort of process this, he began to say, there, there's a line he called the line of despair. It's when truth began to shift and change. Uh, it began to take on a different shape. And the philosophers were starting to play with truth, they're trying to play with truth, concepts of truth, and you can see it really clearly illustrated in art. He does this in the book. He says, um, you know, when you look at Van Gogh, what began to happen is you began to see truth more subjectively. Uh, he's not evaluating at all in the book, you know, the art form itself or the artist's capacity or the beauty of the art, just the statement the art is making. And that with Van Gogh, you had kind of like, it wasn't capturing reality as it was, but the, but the, the, the synthesis of, uh, of right and wrong, the synthesis of truth and non-truth, trying to find the essence of it, the middle ground, the, the middle place. That was the, the kind of the hope of the Impressionist painters. And then what came after Impressionism was, was Cubism, and you see this in Picasso. This is a still life of Picasso's. Uh, I, I chose all uh, pictures from the Metropolitan Museum in New York because it's one of my favorite museums, and I've stood, stood and studied these paintings uh, for some time. Picasso began to work with truth in a different way, started to do some deconstruction. Uh, started to, to, to just deconstruct the realities altogether. Just following Cubism was an art form called Dadaism. And Dadaism is, you know, Jackson Pollock would be a famous Dada artist who began to work with absurdity. Um, you know, Jackson Pollock would poke holes in the paint cans and just move them around on the canvas. And they just would communicate just sort of that life, life is ultimately meaningless and, and absurd. Absurdity is the only truth. And what began to happen is, as people began to kind of live in this new reality, that the artists were sort of painting the portraits, literally, of what was to come uh, to be the experience of, uh, of people living in America, was that, that, that truth was, was, had, had been sort of meddled with, had been deconstructed, and now in its place was just absurdity. And truth really had become a subjective experience more than an objective reality that we looked to. It was a, sub a subjective experience that we, that, that we sort of felt viscer viscerally. Rabbi Zacharias explains it this way. He says, such is the mood of the 20th century. A mood can be a dangerous state of mind because it can crush reason under the weight of feeling. But that's precisely what I believe postmodernism best represents, a mood. 
In fact, if you pay attention, like culturally, to the conversation that's happening, what you'll see is there's not a whole lot of exchange of ideas, but there's a lot of moodiness. There's not, there's not a whole lot of, a, of, of, of dialogue happening in a pursuit of some truth that's outside of me, but there's a whole lot of anger inside of me because I feel violated. Because truth has moved from the outside, an outside objective thing, to an inside subjective thing. It moved. It relocated. And so people aren't pursuing a truth on the outside of them, but they're identifying a truth inside of them, and what's, what's happened is they've begun to attach their identity to it, and that's the danger. You see, when I was growing up, I was taught to be a light bulb rather than a mirror. Uh, that's how I was instructed. Look inside of yourself for meaning. Be the source of meaning. Find your source of meaning. But that's not how God made me. That's not how he made you. You're an image bearer. You were made to reflect ultimate meaning, God's ultimate meaning. You're not meant to be the truth. You're meant to reflect the truth. You're not to be the, the originator of meaning. You're meant to, to, to walk around as a reflector of the meaning of God. It's a violation of your nature. You see, we were trained to look for truth inside of us, and then we attached ourselves to it. We wrapped our identities around it. And what's happening is, is this culture, Generation Z particularly, are, are being radically, uh, readily identified as the most anxious generation. I think one of the reasons is the human mind is an insufficient vessel to carry universal truth. <laughs> like we recognize it about ourselves, and so what happens is we begin to run around trying to find people who are also had the same identity truth thing going on. And we cul-de-sac into areas of society. Fundamentalism is on the rise because people are identifying small groups that they can hold on to, that hold on to that same truth wrapped around that same identity, and they're finding their little tribe, and they're just, it's just increasing in their fundamentalist sort of intensity. And I think what makes contemporary fundamentalism unique is that it's not a strict adherence to a truth outside of you. It's a strict adherence to a truth that is bound to a person's core identity. And here's how you know that's true. Because of this, changing a mind is almost impossible. It, it, just, it just isn't a virtue in modern society. If, you know, if truth is really on the outside of you, and in your pursuit of truth you have a change of mind, that should be virtuous. It should be, it should be the right thing. Because, man, you're, 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 you're giving, you're bending the knee to something bigger than you and, and more awesome than you. But the truth is inside of you, you can't change a mind because to lose an argument is to lose yourself. And I can't, I can't risk losing my identity because my identity is tied to my truth. And the net result is dialogue is all, all but lost. And what you see in public discourse is you don't see a whole lot of dialogue of, uh, of people pursuing a truth that's greater than themselves. What you see is a lot of moodiness, a lot of anger, a lot of rage, a lot of intensity. So how does this connect to our passage? Well, Bel Bel Belshazzar made himself, as, as Nebuchadnezzar, the center of the universe. And what we're doing in contemporary American culture is making ourselves the center of the universe by attaching truth to our own identities and being unshapeable, unable to change. And I think the American experience is deeply in need of an objective universal truth that Jesus is Lord. Do you know, I think one of the most prophetic things you can do with your life is to be consistently being changed and shaped by the truth of the Lordship of Jesus. Just saying over and over again with your life, your will, not mine, be done. Your will, not mine, be done that I am a clay 
And you are the potter. You make me the way you want to make me. I am not the center of the universe or the source of universal truth. You are. And boy, that would just make the world's head spin. Because people, people are not used to seeing that kind of behavior in the world. You see, I think the writing is on the wall, and you can respond in a number of ways. You can ignore the reality. You can satiate the fear. You can collapse under the weight of it all. Or you can fear God to the extent that you fear nothing else. I think there's a prophetic voice, unique prophetic voice that Christians can have in our current cultural time. That is a fearless generation of people who know whom they serve and live radically with a love of God and a love of neighbor. Let me just tell you something I think, I mean, I, I want to preach a sermon on this later, and I don't know, maybe I will. But just as an aside, I think we need to find a way to unite beauty and truth again. Here's what I mean by that. I was, I was driving last night to go get some burgers. I was going to put them on the grill. And I pulled around the corner, and I looked up, I don't know if anybody saw the moon rise above the Sandias. Oh, man, phenomenal. And I was like, whoa, that's, that's beautiful. I can tell you what didn't happen. I didn't, like, rationalize it. I didn't put it through some kind of intellectual lens. I didn't, you know, like, think, I'm not a scientist. I didn't think critically about why it was the way it was or anything like that. I just worshipped it. I mean, I just worshipped it. Like, man, that's beautiful, God. Thank you. It's beautiful. Truth at its best isn't cold and factual. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. In a second, we're going to have an opportunity to take communion. And at communion, we'll, during the worship, we're recognizing a truth that Jesus' body was broken for us and his blood was shed for us. Our, you know, when we confess Christ as Lord, it is a truth for sure. But it's a beautiful truth. It's a beautiful truth. I mean, it's, it's one that I want to bow my knee to. He's a Savior I want to worship. He's a God who does everything to rescue me and to save me. And so the truth that we hold on to is not just, it's not just a truth. It's, it's a beautiful one. And I think the world's in need of a beautiful truth because there's a lot of ugly truth out there right now. Father, we, um, I don't know how to pray about this. I you know, my, my feeling is right now, Lord, I just, as I've been, you know, thinking about the message, I've been worried about being too dense, and I've been worried about, like, does the art stuff to not resonate or connect or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I have so much fear and anxiety often because I think about first my performance and not your greatness and your goodness. I just confess that um, you're Lord, and you're great, and you're good, and your Holy Spirit works through your word, and you do what you want to do. Uh, and, uh, and I ask that you would do what you want to do with me, and that you do what you want to do with our church, and that you would just move with us through the power of your Holy Spirit to say to you, your will be done. I, I mean, man, Monday's going to hit me, and I'm going to want to go do all the things I want to do. Uh, forgive me for not more often just saying, what do you want, Lord Jesus, with my life? So I pray that you would, as a posture, just as our church would, you know, this world needs that prophetic voice. I really believe that, Father. I think that this is what the world needs. And would you, would you, 
you know, if that's true, would you affirm that through your Holy Spirit? Would you um, move us to be a people that, that surrenders wholly to you? Like, just absolutely, 100%, all the time, wholly to you. That we'd seek your will above our own. That we would do what you would want to say. I mean, like, uh, this is hard. I mean, I, I even now, in my prayer to you, I'm thinking about all the exceptions to the rule. There are no exceptions. You're the, you're, you're the standard. You're the rule. And um, may we be clay in your hands. May you be the potter. Mold us and shape us as a, as a church, as a community, as individuals. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, we pray.